0: Today we're going to be in Second Thessalonians chapter two uh, verses one through fifteen. <clears throat> now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who is not who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not Receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Thank you.
1: You may be seated. And as you take your seats this morning, as always, let's pray as we come to God's holy word. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we acknowledge again our need of your help to understand it. And Father, we recognize that you have revealed it for our understanding and for our lives. So Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. And give us understanding. Turn the lights on, Father, in our minds. And illuminate the meaning of Your words to us today. And help us again, not just to understand in our minds, but to trust in our hearts and in our lives that we might live hopefully. And that we might be prepared for the great coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, Father, we might glorify You and serve You and be effective lights in the darkness for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of the gospel until Jesus comes. And so, Father, this morning give us encouragement, give us hope, and use your word to continue its work in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know that last week I told you that we were going to take several weeks together to study Jesus' teachings about the end of the age. In Matthew chapter 24, and we are, today in connection with that, we're going to dip here into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in conjunction with this study on the end times, especially focusing on Jesus' own teaching in Matthew, because this is one of those other scriptures that we talked about last week where God reveals more, scripture interprets, scripture God progressively reveals truth throughout the whole canon of His Word. Here, God reveals more. He sheds more light on the same truths that Jesus was teaching to His disciples there in Matthew chapter 24. So remember that passage a little bit with me. Remember from last week that when Jesus told His disciples that the great temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and left totally desolate, they were shocked, and they asked him when that was going to happen and what would be the signs to signal his second coming and the end of this age. And that when they asked him that, Jesus began to teach them that those things wouldn't all happen at the same time there would be a long period of time in between the temple being destroyed and his coming again to bring this age and this world to an end and that that long period of time in between is this time that we're still living in now and that Jesus highlighted in verses 4 through 8 remember of Matthew chapter 24 several typical characteristic marks of this whole age. Things like false teaching and political turmoil, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, world upheaval in all sorts of ways that are characteristic of this present age. They're not signs that the end is to come. Remember Jesus said when you see these things don't be alarmed, the end is not yet here. It's just the way this sin-cursed groaning world Is and you need to endure and be faithful in it. And then, secondly, in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, Jesus talked all about the signs that will come to signal that the end of this age and the end of this world is near and that those things will happen as a result. We saw from Revelation chapter 20 of Satan being let off his chain. Satan being let loose so that he can deceive all of the nations of the world to the extent that they'll gather together and surround all the saints of God. There won't be anywhere to go and flee and find refuge anymore from the persecutions of the world and of Satan as all of the nations make all-out war against the church and try to destroy the bride of Christ. And then Jesus says, then, when that happens, right Soon after that, then the end will come because the bridegroom will come and put an end to it all. Jesus will come and destroy Satan, destroy the nations, destroy the world, destroy all wickedness and evil, save his bride and make all things new. And we saw that during that time at the end when Satan is let loose and the nations are deceived and the church comes under that massive global sort of coordinated persecution from all the nations. During that time, remember, John says in 1 John chapter 2 that someone or something called the Antichrist will appear, leading all of that deception and persecution and causing a lot of people who are in the church and call themselves Christians, causing a lot of them to fall away. Remember? Because... The cost of following Jesus and enduring to the end will become too great for many people to bear, and and so they'll fall away. A massive apostasy will come when Satan is let loose near the end of the age. We talked about all those things last week, so this week I wanted to take a look with you at the second chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians because it fills out this same teaching. That the loosing of Satan near the end is going to bring about the rise and the appearance of this this antichrist. Paul refers to him here as the man of lawlessness and the son of perdition or the son of destruction. Because of the massive apostasy within the church that's going to come with him. He's He's going to cause people to fall away and fall into a lot of lawlessness and ultimately fall into destruction. All of that is at the heart of this passage of Scripture here that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Thessalonica in Greece in the first century. And Paul's message to the Christians there was exactly the same as Jesus' message to his disciples years before and God's message to us 2,000 years later. The message is, all of that's going to happen. Don't be surprised And when it happens, don't be deceived and stand firm and hold fast and persevere through it by God's grace, by God's strength, by God's word until the very end. And so today, Paul's going to emphasize the specific and central way how we can do that, we can endure, persevere, stand firm, hold fast, even though all these things are going to come and already are coming, Hold fast until the end. Now, in the church that Paul wrote this letter and the one before at 1 Thessalonians, he wrote these two letters to the church in Thessalonica because Christians were being confused and misled by a very specific false teaching which said that Jesus had already returned and they'd missed it. They taught that he had returned in some mystical, invisible, spiritual way. And this false teaching, which by the way is still with us today. There are still people who try to teach this. And in Paul's day, it wasn't just confusing Christians, it was dramatically threatening their hope because they were living in this world full of suffering and sorrow and tribulation and wars and natural disasters and all of that, and they were fearing that they might have missed out on Christ's return and, and the eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness. And so Paul deals with this false teaching in both of these letters, First and 2 Thessalonians, in order to assure Christians that they hadn't missed the boat. Jesus hasn't returned yet. And when he does, you'll know it for sure, Paul says, in one way in 1 Thessalonians and in another way here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, you're not going to miss the second coming of Jesus. It's not going to be silent. It's not going to be secret. It's not going to be spiritual. It's not going to be invisible. It's going to be earth-shattering, right? Unmistakable, sky-splitting, cosmically disrupting, (laughs) trumpet-blowing, and the archangel of God calling out, And Jesus descending visibly, physically from the sky. You're not going to miss it. The whole world will see and will understand. And then here, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul doesn't tell them what he did there, what it'll be like when Christ returns. He tells them what has to happen right before Christ returns. Again, here's some signs to look for that will signal you that it's close, that it's near at hand. And there are two things that Paul focuses on in that regard here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Things that have to come first as a result of Satan being let off his chain, which we learned about last week. And those two things are, according to verse 3 here, the rebellion, as my translation puts it, and the man of lawlessness being revealed. And there, these are two connected events The man of lawlessness will be revealed and propagate this rebellion of people into lawlessness. And Paul wants us to know this both to assure us, first of all, that we haven't somehow missed the second coming. And then secondly, so that we can be prepared for it when it happens. Prepared to endure these two things that have to happen first. So let's look at them. The first one is... Again, in my translation, what Paul refers to as the rebellion, the presence of the definite article, the, is important. This isn't just general rebellion. It's a specific, definite instance of unique rebellion that he calls the rebellion. It's unprecedented, and it's going to bring to a culmination all of the general rebellion that's already going on and has been festering in the world all along. And the word that Paul uses for rebellion here, or whatever your translation reads, is the Greek word apostasia, apostasy, right? That's, the, that's our English word. And biblically, here's what that word means. It's a two-sided coin. It means falling away from God. And so that's why some of your translations may say that, falling away. That's, that's what it means. You once were standing with God in faith and professing faith and then you fell away from all of that because the cost became too high to count for you. So it means a falling away from God on the one hand but then it also means a rising up against God on the other hand. You don't remain neutral. You you come to be at enmity against Him. That's why it's translated rebellion in a lot of our English translations. And what Paul is talking about, so so see, it's something that happens from within the church. It happens to people who once were identified as and identified themselves as God's people and then fell away and started to fight against him. This isn't the threat of false teaching that comes from the outside. This is a problem that comes from the inside of the church. And so Paul, see, is talking here about the very same thing that John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, where he says that there are many antichrists in the world, but there's an ultimate antichrist who's going to come and will cause many to fall away. Same word, apostasy. To fall away from Christ and to rise up against him. And so John said, this antichrist who will come, it's the same one that Paul calls the man of lawlessness, that he's going to be preceded by many antichrists who have already come. People, John says, who started in the church, people who seemed to be following Jesus, but then went out and ended up leading many people away from Jesus with false teaching in their rebellion against him. That's what apostasy is in the sense of the word here. It's not an attack on the church and the faith and the gospel from the outside. It's an insurrection that comes from the inside. And it's something that's happening already. And it's something that's going to continue. It's something that's going to increase. And it'll build up to and it will culminate in the ultimate antichrist appearing and the ultimate rebellion that he or it is going to cause. Now, in verse 4, Paul says this. He says that this person, this man of lawlessness, this ultimate antichrist, and he uses personal pronouns here, which probably means it's an individual, a human. says that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy back in the Old Testament book of Daniel about an ultimate enemy of God who is going to come and come into the temple of God and defile it, desecrate it, and then from that place attack the people of God. Now there were two partial fulfillments in history already partial fulfillments already, of that prophecy in Daniel. One of them was more than 150 years before Jesus was born, during the the time of the Maccabees, when this Hellenistic king called Antiochus Epiphanes came and and defiled the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Desecrated it with, with pig's blood. The physical temple building there in Jerusalem. And then there was another partial fulfillment when the Romans came in 70 AD and installed all of these pictures of the and images of their emperor, who they venerated as God, in the temple, defiling it spiritually, desecrating it again, and then ultimately they, they tore the temple down and destroyed it. But here, Paul's pointing forward, past all that, to something more. To an ultimate fulfillment, to the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy when this ultimate antichrist, this ultimate man of lawlessness will, he says, take his seat in the temple of God. And that specific phrase, the temple of God, it's a specifically worded phrase, it's a technical reference that occurs ten times throughout the New Testament, including here. And of the nine other times that it occurs in the New Testament, the phrase temple of God refers to the physical building called the temple in Jerusalem, guess how many times? Once. In a historical description in the Gospels. Only once. Every other time, the phrase temple of God explicitly refers either to Jesus himself like John chapter 2 tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in 3 days or it's specifically a reference to his church like in Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 right the the temple that we are as living stones built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone Or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He's not referring to the building in Jerusalem, right? He's referring to the people of God who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the church. Unambiguously. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, same thing. What agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God. It's not the building made of stone in Jerusalem, it's the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the temple of God is all throughout the New Testament. Ever since Jesus died in the veil of the temple of God that was the building got torn in two. So see, it it works like this, just like all of those animals in the Old Testament that were sacrificed for the atonement of sin, just like all of those animals were foreshadowings of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, who is the true and ultimate Lamb of God, the temple of the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the true and living temple made out of living stones that Jesus and His church are in the New Testament. And that's that's what the New Testament teaches, and that's what Paul's referring to here when he says that the man of lawlessness will take his seat in the temple of God. Not a building made out of earthly stones, but the church made out of living stones. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, is going to establish himself in a position of authority in the temple of the Holy Spirit, in the church of Jesus Christ. And and He'll cause it to become massively and predominantly defiled with false teaching and unbelief and immorality such that it will become very, very apostate. Full of people who call themselves Christians but are actually unbelieving and militating against God and Christ and the truth. Raging against the gospel and the word and the law of God. And you say, yeah, I can, I can feel it coming. We can see the signs of it already. The leading winds of that ultimate apostasy that will be like a hurricane making landfall on the church. The leading winds are already blowing, howling. Right, All kinds of deception and false teaching. All kinds of false gospels. All kinds of assaults on Christ's lordship and deity and holiness. Not from the outside, but from the inside are already happening. Outright attacks on the purity and the inerrancy and the authority of God's word and on God's law and on God's truth and on God's righteousness. They're rampant right now even in the church of Jesus Christ, in the temple of God. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, much, much worse. Are you ready for it? That's the question. That's the message. Are you prepared to weather this mounting storm? How do we get prepared? That's this passage. So first, look at verses 6 and 7 of Second Thessalonians 2. Paul says... And he's talking about this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction who is yet to come. He says, you know what is restraining him so that now he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, right? The leading edge of the storm is already upon us. Only he who now restrains the full landfall of the hurricane, the full Antichrist the full rebellion he who is now restraining it will do so until he's taken out of the way the restrainer's taken out of the way so listen the first way that god would prepare us to weather the gathering storm of lawlessness is to assure us that these dark spiritual winds that are blowing these dark patterns of deception and destruction that are already mounting they're being restrained by someone by who Well, we've already seen who, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. I believe Paul's talking here about the same person and the same power that John was talking about in Revelation chapter 20, where we saw an angel binding, limiting, restraining Satan with a chain and a key. And here it says that when the Antichrist comes in verse 9, it's because of the activity of Satan. It's being restrained now by this angel There's a divine, sovereign power working through a heavenly agent, an angel, to restrain Satan's power and influence to try to decimate the church. And at the end of the age, Revelation 20 already told us, the chain's going to be loosed. The restraint's going to be removed. And Satan is going to unleash this global conspiracy against the church, which is going to include the rise of this antichrist who is is for now being restrained and he will bring about the great apostasy the great rebellion so all see that everything we've already studied is exactly what Paul is referring to here he calls it the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7 something that's being revealed to us so that we can understand there's a pattern of lawlessness at work in this world that will one day build and increase and be manifested in the appearance of this man of lawlessness, but, but currently it's being restrained. It's being kept from being fully manifested in all of its ugliness and all of its rebellion. It operates by the activity of Satan, verse 9. But it's kept, as Satan himself is kept, from realizing its worst form. Before Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago. Spiritual darkness absolutely reigned over the whole planet, didn't it? Israel was the only light, and they were supposed to be the light to the nations, but even, even their light flickered desperately because they allowed the darkness to come in. They succumbed to the idolatry and the worldliness and the wickedness that Satan spread all across the globe. Then Jesus came, And said, like we saw last week in Matthew 12, that he had bound Satan, was binding Satan, so that the disciples could go into the world and plunder Satan's house with him. Making disciples. Be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And what happened when they did that? Boom, right? The gospel started to spread like wildfire for the first time in history Thousands of people were saved in, in Jerusalem and one day alone and then it started to spread all throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the Roman Empire and now 2,000 years later to the ends of the earth. Churches are still being planted. Nations who walked in darkness are seeing a glorious light because Satan, the prince of darkness, is bound by the power of the prince of peace because the angel in Revelation 20, has got Satan's neck on a chain. And even though Satan thrashes against that chain and pulls and snarls and roars like a fearsome lion, he cannot break that chain. He cannot do his worst. He cannot, so long as he is bound, deceive the nations and keep them in darkness. He cannot, so long as he is bound, keep the gospel from piercing the darkness And he cannot unleash the ultimate manifestation of antichrist and lawlessness in this world. That's being restrained for now. But the winds of that apostasy are already blowing. And the full storm is coming. And so to prepare us to endure the mounting storm and not just throw up our hands and defeat and go, oh, no, despair, oh, the end is nigh and all is inevitably bad... Despair and defeat, Paul first shows us that God is restraining Satan and Antichrist so that we can be encouraged to stay faithful. God's holding him back, let's go in and do the work that we're called to do during this time of restraint. And then Paul also wants to know that our ultimate focus Needs to not be on Satan, needs to not be on the Antichrist, needs to not be on all the lawlessness, but on Christ Himself. Don't focus entirely on the bad news so much that you can't be focused on the good news. Paul's not trying to scare us here, right? Yeah, the restraints of Satan and Antichrist are going to be removed. Yep, the lawless one's going to be revealed. And final and ultimate apostasy is going to come. But look at verse 8 where the focus immediately shifts onto the coming of Jesus himself. And when he comes, he'll bring all of that rebellion and he'll bring Antichrist and he'll bring Satan himself. He'll bring him, it says, to nothing. So Paul's not trying to scare us by being very upfront and frank with us and realistic about the activity of Satan and the coming of all of this antichrist lawless apostasy. He's trying to prepare us for those terrible realities by focusing us on Jesus, on the wonderful reality of Jesus' sovereignty over this whole world and over Satan, and of Jesus' ultimate victory when he will come and. Make all nothing of it all. So keep your eyes fixed on him and you will always be prepared to endure whatever comes and everything that will come into this world. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And here's how it's going to come. It's by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Satan's hard at work in all kinds of ways, even supernatural ways, to unleash a deluge of deception into this world and to try to drown out the truth of God in a torrent of Destructive lies that people will be tempted to believe because the people speaking them are going to be able to do signs and wonders. Well, how do you, how could we not, how could we not trust it? How how will we know not to, if they're doing signs and wonders, how do we know those aren't signs and wonders that come from God, right? We got to be careful, right? You got to be aware of what Satan's trying to do and how he's trying to do it so that we can stand firm on the truth of God's word and not get carried away by deceptions and false teaching. And the way to know is to know God's word, right? Is the person performing signs and wonders faithfully teaching what God's word infallibly reveals? Or are they leading us astray from the true gospel and the true Christ? Because the signs and wonders don't matter. The truth of the word matters. Satan will make lies sound good to people's itching ears, Paul says to Timothy. Satan will make lies look good. He will frost his lies with signs and wonders that look spectacular to people and that impress people in this world and make people think that the power of God must be at work so they let their guard down because they're dazzled by all the signs. The shiny, sparkly, supernaturally amazing things, but they don't know the truth enough to discern the errors. And this kind of thing already happens all the time in this world. Never, ever, ever anchor your hope, first and foremost, to displays of supernatural power or signs and wonders. Because Jesus says back in Matthew's Gospel, and Paul is saying right here, Satan is going to use even those things to cloak and to conceal deadly lies. Satan's like the one who wraps up a bomb in Christmas wrapping with pretty ribbons and bows. It looks beautiful, it looks wholesome, it's so tempting until you rip it open and it explodes and kills you. That's exactly how Satan operates. He's an angel of light. He uses signs and wonders. He plays on people's vulnerabilities and proclivities to be impressed by those things more than by the word of God. And so God tells this to us so that we can make sure we don't fall for it. If a strange package shows up on your doorstep, wrapped all pretty, maybe give it a listen before just tearing into it. That's what what God is saying here. Stand first and foremost on the truth that is clearly and plainly revealed in His Holy Word so that you can discern the errors no matter how good they look or sound. The perspective on the activity of Satan can't be our ultimate perspective. God and His Word have to be our ultimate perspective. When we let Satan be our ultimate perspective, we get bogged down in feelings of defeat, feelings of fear, despair. The ultimate perspective that God gives us is that even behind the activity of Satan that lies behind all the lawlessness of this world is the sovereign activity of God to work out and accomplish His perfect purposes. We know that how? Because His Word is sure. So, there in verses 9 and 10 where Paul says this, he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. What's the very next word there? It's the word because, right? Purpose. Why is all this satanic activity happening ultimately? Paul tells us it's because, and this is a hard verse to come to terms with, but it's God's word. It's because people refused to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's a hard verse. You've got to be careful how to understand that verse, right? God, who is holy and righteous... And just never ever causes sin. Very often gives mercy in response to sin. And also gives justice. And the justice of God often fights fire with fire. He can't sin, He can't tempt anyone to sin, the scripture says clearly. But in His sovereign purposes, God often uses the sinfulness of sinners as a judgment against the sinfulness in this world. Like he did in raising up the sinful Babylonians to punish the sinfulness in Jerusalem. And sometimes God gives sinful people what they deserve and what they're looking for, what they want, what they've been striving after. He gives them sin. He gives them over, Paul says in Romans 1, to their sinful desires and depraved minds because they refuse to turn to him for salvation says the same thing here. They keep running after unbelief when the belief is being clearly proclaimed, when the truth is. Then he's just going to give them all the unbelief that they want. People in this world refuse to love the truth that God has revealed in his word. They refuse to be saved by the free offer of salvation that God gives through faith in Jesus, right? Jesus says, Come unto me all, who are weary, and I will give you rest. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. God guarantees in His word. Spurgeon says, with absolute confidence, no one in hell will say, well, I came to Jesus, but He turned me away. He rejected me. That's not how it works. Jesus won't turn away anyone who comes to Him, but those who refuse Because instead of delighting in truth and holiness, they delight in falsehood and wickedness. They're going to be given what they want for eternity. And Paul's ultimate concern here is not just to assure Christians to be careful about the false teaching and to be confident that Jesus is still coming in the future, but to exhort us to be ready for his return. By standing firm on the truth and not being led astray into unbelief. Because when Jesus returns, that's it. When Jesus returns, he's coming to bring the full and final judgment of God upon this world. And so nothing in this world matters more than being ready for that. How can you be ready? How can you be sure that you're prepared for Jesus to come? Well, Paul's answer can be summed up, I think, this way. It's to be very, very confident of God's word and God's work in our lives, but I would add the word vigilant to it. Be vigilantly confident of God's word and of God's work in our lives. And that's what, that's what Paul's talking about in verses 13 through 15. He doesn't want us to just be generally confident. He wants us to be supremely confident that God's word is true. And part of the way we can be is because of the work that God accomplishes in our lives through his word. We need to trust what God says in his word, especially when it comes to the gospel. And we need to trust the work that God is doing in our lives. And we need to put more confidence in that than we put in anything else in this world. And in our lives. And that confidence doesn't happen automatically. You're not going to be sitting on your couch, eating popcorn, watching football and movies all day, playing video games all day long, and not paying attention to God's word. And then all of a sudden you're going to become supremely confident of of what his word says in a way that transforms your life. You've got to be vigilant about it. This kind of confidence that we need in order to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus has to be cultivated actively in our lives. Can't just go around doing whatever we feel like and hoping that this robust life-anchoring confidence is going to just happen to us, causing us to know and to be prepared for the end. If that's your approach, when all of the apostasy comes, you won't be able to endure it. So how can we cultivate vigilantly this life-bolstering confidence that when Jesus returns to bring the fullness of divine judgment to bear on this world, we'll be ready for it? That's the question. When Here's the first part of the answer. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi and an earthquake shook open the doors to the prison and all their chains fell off, And the jailer, panicking, found that they were all still in there, singing hymns instead of trying to escape. He knew that God had done something big. And what was the question he asked them? What must I do to be saved? And what was the simple, plain answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Period, right? First and foremost, being prepared for the day when Jesus returns means believing that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way unto the Father. Being prepared first and foremost means believing in the gospel of salvation through Him alone believing that Jesus truly is the Son of God incarnate in human flesh and that He came here, lived a sinless life, took our place on the cross as our substitute, bore all of the wrath of God for us, forgiving our sins, justifying us, reconciling us to God, adopting us as sons so that when He returns to bring the full weight of divine wrath to bear against all the sin in this world, that divine wrath won't touch us. Faith in Jesus, faith in the gospel, is the only way to escape the wrath of God that is to come for you, for me, and for all of the people around us in this world. But remember the very sobering words of James. In James chapter 2 and verse 14, where James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith in Christ, but does not have works which come from that faith? Can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is absolutely not. Believing in Jesus, that he died, that he rose, and even thinking that he might have done that for you, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that, but they shudder in fear. They don't rest in faith. Faith apart from works is useless. Just like the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. So, being vigilantly confident that you're ready for the return of Jesus starts with believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, but doesn't end there. It means cultivating such a robust confidence in the truth of that gospel that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that your life is transforming by it. The faith through which we are saved is a true and a vital living faith, it can't just rattle around in our brains, it has to actively be transforming our lives, and as it is, progressively, slowly, as we've been studying on Thursday nights in Bible study, not like a mushroom, right, that's not on your lawn when you go to bed and then you wake up in the morning and boom, a mushroom's popped up, that's not how the Christian life works, it's not boom, you're suddenly all holy, it's more like an oak tree, You see a little sprig, and then it grows slowly over a long, long time. And and over years and decades, it becomes a big, strong, mighty oak. That's how the Christian life works. And that's how faith works when it's living and actively transforming our lives. It's the kind of faith, it's the kind of confidence in the gospel that can't possibly leave a life unchanged. Jesus loved me enough to bleed and die for my sins. I don't want to keep living in these sins. It's that kind of faith. It's causing by the powerful working of God what the Bible calls sanctification progressively to happen as we increasingly hate the sin that remains in us. And as we increasingly grow in love for Jesus who died for that sin and grow in gratitude to Him, and a desire to please Him, and a desire to honor Him more and more, and a a growing passion, a growing pursuit of the holiness and righteousness in our lives that pleases Him. That's what happens as as you continue to feed your faith vigilantly and cultivate it with the rich nutrients of the living, active Word of God in your life, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, all throughout your life. Being prepared for Jesus' return means being vigilantly confident both in the Word of God and in the works that God is accomplishing through His Word in our lives. So, verse 13, here's how Paul says it. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because, here's the gospel God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. You see, God chose us to be saved from the penalty of sin through sanctification, which will cleanse us from the presence of sin. He's giving thanks that the Christians in Thessalonica have not been led astray by the false teaching that they've encountered. And the reason Paul knows they haven't been led astray The reason Paul's confident of their salvation, enough to give thanks to God for it, is because he knows they've been chosen by God to be saved. And how does he know that? Because he knows that the the salvation that God gives to the people he chooses to give it to always produces sanctification and he sees it in their lives. He sees them growing more and more into mature oak trees. Because even when those Christians were suffering, they were growing. Even when they had to count the cost, they were thriving in faithfulness instead of withering and fading and falling away. How do you be prepared for Jesus to return? By vigilantly cultivating a growing confidence in the gospel. and in these truths that Paul talks about here in verse 13, first, this is such a great truth that will give you such confidence and hope and peace and joy in your life. If you're saved, it's first and foremost because God chose to save you. Think about that. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says that you were chosen by God to be saved before not only you were even born, but before the foundations of the world were ever even laid. That means that God, who's eternal and all-knowing about everything in the past and the present and the future, His knowledge is limitless, right? Unsearchable, inscrutable, infinite. This all-knowing God, before He even said the words, let there be light, He knew that you would exist. He knew everything about you. He already had every hair on your head numbered. And he even knew every single sin in your life. Every failure. Every detail. All of it in advance. He knew. And he chose. Even before he spoke the creation into being, thousands and thousands of years ago, he chose to save you. Glory be to God. God said, in the year 1971, on May 9th, A boy named Steve will be conceived and will be born. And he'll grow to be a profound sinner. (laughs) He will go far astray from me. He will do whatever's right in his own eyes. He'll refuse to honor me as God. He'll shake his fist in my glory. Every thought and inclination of his heart will only be sinful all the time. God knew about me. He'll look for ways. He'll invent new ways to reject my authority and spurn my glory and live according to his own desires. And God said, somewhere around, God knew exactly, I forget. But in the spring of 1986, I will redeem him. I will bring him to the absolute end of himself. And I will show him my glory that he fell away from. And I will shatter his hard heart with the love and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life will never be the same. God knew. God chose. And listen, if God hadn't done that, hadn't determined before he even laid the foundations of the world, hadn't chosen me by the sheer unconditional depths of his divine love, Then that redemption would never ever have happened. I promise you, because I know me. I can tell you without question, I would never have chosen him unless he had first chosen me. Now, look at what else Paul says here in verse 13 God did that, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How specifically? To be saved how? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth that's revealed in the Word. God never ever chooses to save anyone who He doesn't intend to sanctify. We're never saved because of our good works. But salvation always results in good works, if it's true. Saving faith is, by definition, sanctifying faith. The bare intellectual kind of faith that says, Jesus is my Savior but doesn't bear any fruit of growing holiness is dead faith. Can't save anyone, James says. Here Paul says God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He didn't just choose to make sure you'd never suffer His wrath because you had faith that Jesus suffered it for you, He chose also to sanctify you, to set you apart by the Holy Spirit as a whole person, mind, heart, body, for holiness and service to God and His kingdom and to give you a means of plugging in in His Word to the life-transforming grace that you need to be able to see your sin as sin and then put it to death as it remains in you and grow in holiness and to be more and more devoted to the cause of his kingdom in your life and in this world than any other ambition in your life. And in verse 14 then, Paul says that this is what we've been called to. To this he has Called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called us. It wasn't a suggestion. He called us to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come through faith in Jesus, which is a living faith that produces fruit and results in lives that are being sanctified, more and more molded to the image of Christ's righteousness. When Paul says that God called us to that, he doesn't just mean, hey, if you think it's okay, then he means more than that. He means like he called Lazarus out of his tomb. By the power of his voice and by the power of his word, God is calling us to this salvation and sanctification. Jesus didn't just say, Lazarus, come forth and leave it up to the dead guy to decide whether or not to do it. Jesus called and spoke resurrection into the dead guy. And the dead guy became a living guy once again. And then the living guy obeyed the voice of his master. And that's what Jesus has done to us. That's how God has called us, to be saved through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He he called our dead souls to be raised through the power of the gospel, to become new creation, because He is the resurrection and the life. And now He's calling us to grow and to obey and to persevere and to endure so that we will be prepared and ready for when Christ comes. And isn't it awesomely encouraging as we think about how to be prepared for the coming of Jesus that, that what Paul's doing first and foremost is pointing us to God's work in us to prepare us, choosing us before we even existed, calling us with this, with this resurrection power to be raised, to live, to be saved, to be sanctified through the Holy Spirit and set apart to a life of devotion to Him through this divine power of God that does all this. So being prepared for what's coming and for Christ's coming means being vigilantly confident, cultivating this confidence in all this work of God in our lives so that, verse 14, we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so that when He comes... God won't be glorified by casting us off as sinners into outer darkness, but instead he will be glorified by gathering us unto himself as as redeemed children and as his precious bride to be brought into the presence of his glory forever. Will you be prepared? Will you be ready? If so, then you're going to have to endure what Paul says is coming. And, And if you're going to do that and endure and continue to grow into a strong oak tree in your faith in spite of all of the lawlessness and persecution that will come and is already here, then you are going to need to plug into this power source that is the divine Word and the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. So how do you know if you're going to obtain the great hope of dwelling in the presence of Jesus in His glory for all of eternity. Well, you know, if here and now you have this living, vital, Holy Spirit-forged faith in the gospel that's causing you to be transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next as you persevere and endure. And so to that end, verse 15, Paul gives us this... Powerful exhortation and encouragement. So, then, brothers, here's what you've got to do to be prepared stand firm, hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. He means the Scriptures, the living, active, life-transforming power of the Word of God. Know it, read it, understand it, hide it in your heart, meditate on it, trust it, stand firm in it, hold fast to it because there are going to be things that try like crazy to pull you away from it, lead you astray from it, and towards destruction. How can we cultivate this confident assurance that our faith is living and vital and true? Only by standing firm and holding fast to the traditions. Traditions means teachings that have been handed down. Ancient truths that haven't ever changed. That have been established in the past Revealed by God in His infallible, inerrant Word, taught and affirmed and preserved as the Holy Spirit has safeguarded them against being distorted and polluted and corrupted because they remain unchanged in God's Word. Listen, today, people are enamored more than anything by things that are new. New teachings, novel positions. Today, Progressive doctrines are the ones that are considered to be the best because we've left all this old, obsolete, fuddy-duddy teaching of our grandfathers behind and progressed into the modern era of enlightenment. And God says, that's a bad thing. Progressive doctrines are departures and distortions and corruptions from the traditions that God has handed down. From the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as Jude puts it. Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 6, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. The ancient ones. Where the way is good. And walk in that ancient way and you will find rest for your souls. Today, the world says the same thing that God warned against in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah's day, they said, I know the ancient paths lead towards that, but but we're not going to walk in the ancient paths where the way is good. We're going to seek rest for our souls on new paths, progressive paths along the way that seems right unto man but leads to destruction. So the bottom line, Christians, if you want to be prepared for Christ's coming, stick to the old roads. Don't wander off the path of the ancient ways that have been revealed in God's word The novel and the new and the progressive have no divine power to save or to sanctify. And in fact, they are only pathways that lead to defilement and ultimately destruction. If you follow those new roads, those shiny new highways that seem like they're leading to a a glorious city, you'll find yourself in in Vegas. (laughs) Sin City. And when Jesus comes, he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me because you are lawless. But if you follow the ancient paths of the God-breathed, living, active word, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much of a struggle it is, no matter how much of a cost you have to count to do it, if you plug into that source of divine life, transforming power day by day by day, then when He comes, even if you're all beat up, He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, now enter into my rest. And know this, when Paul says stand firm and hold fast there, the grammar that he uses means do it. It's a command, and and it means keep on doing. You can't just do it once, and you can't just do it once in a while. Keep on standing firm. Keep on holding fast. Keep on reading. Keep on studying. Keep on learning the traditions and the ancient ways that God has revealed in His Word. Keep filling your mind with His truth. Keep on taking every thought captive. To the obedience of Christ. Keep on being transformed by the renewing of your mind every single day. Because if there isn't a regular steady flow of this living water in your mind, in your heart, in your life, then all of the progressive pollution of the world is going to build up more and more in your heart. Because that is a steady stream that flows in from every direction all around us. And it will stain our minds and our lives more and more and more if it's not constantly washed clean by the pure waters of the Word. But when we keep standing firm, when we keep holding fast to the traditions and the ancient paths and staying on the old roads of the God-breathed way, we will be cleansed, we will be washed, we will be transformed, and we will be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus and His glory so that when He comes we'll be ready for an eternity of glory with Him. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone as His strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's the message. Stand firm, hold fast. In the power of His might to the power of His Word. Let's pray. Father God, again, we pray that this word and this truth would give us a supreme confidence and a God-given power to stand firm and to hold fast against the undercurrents of sin and godlessness in this world, against the fierce winds of false teaching and persecution that are already in this world and will come to be more and more. And Father, that You would help us to endure to the very end, that we wouldn't wither under the harsh heat of suffering, and that we wouldn't be choked out by all of the temptations and wickedness of this world, but that, Father, we would grow only by the power of Your Spirit and Your Word to be stronger and stronger in spite of all of the mounting darkness and lawlessness in this world. Oh, Father, speak to us from your word in a way that changes us and grows us and strengthens us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.